It's a privilege to open the Word after we've kind of ascended up, upward toward heaven in our hearts with worship. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We're in the study of the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular on the trail of the Beatitudes, which there are nine of them, nine statements of blessing for the Christian. It's as if to say, Jesus wants you to be happy. He wants you to be blessed. In a world that is hard and heavy, he gives a heavy message, a message that on the surface many have misunderstood as a list of do's and don'ts that almost crush the spirit, like some kind of old covenant crushing law that that we're supposed to reject and move on from, where instead this sermon actually is meant to crush our pride to get us to enjoy grace. Our pride has to be crushed. Our grip on self-reliance has to be released. Our fear of God's holiness has to be quelled so that we can come to God take him for who he is, look square in the eyes of the word of God and take it at face value, let it hit us, let it undo us so that then we can find grace. And the blessed Christian life is the grace of life. It is the grace-filled spiritual walk of blessing that God lays out as a path to us to follow if we would be willing to do it. And that's why it's here. This is the Sermon on the Mount and stair steps towards blessing. That's what we've been looking at. We've been looking at how to get to blessing. And you have to start, I think, in verse 3 with blessed are the poor in spirit. Poverty of self promises what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of soul promises heaven. If you're willing to look in there, look inside and say, look, I've been trying to do this in my own strength. I need to stop. I need to be humble. I need to be soft. And then there's affirmation that heaven awaits. Number two, step two, you move from being poor in spirit to mourning. You look inside, you see what's there. It's ugly. The blackness of your sin is staring back at you. The closer you draw to Christ, the more light of the gospel is revealing our own sin and our own inconsistencies. The things we want to do, we're not doing. The things we're doing, we don't want to do. We see our wretched state, and we're, we're, we're sort of shocked by that. But then, as we repent, there's comfort, for they shall be comforted. And that's the paraclete word. The Holy Spirit comes alongside and comforts us. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. Another step. This is yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit's control. If you are yielded, you will inherit the earth, meaning you find contentment in your world. So poverty promises heaven. Mourning promises comfort. Meekness, is, meekness promises the earth. It's surrendering to the Spirit's control where the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness or meekness, same word, where God is controlling you and you're able to say, Lord, you provide for every need. You've given me this world to be in. You give me the promise of the new heavens and the new earth and that inheritance is enough. Your grace is sufficient. And then step four, we looked at last week, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are those who want righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Instead of running from the truth, 
Instead of running from God's purity, his holiness, his law, we go towards it and we want righteousness. It's the, it's the starvation from the world. We say enough of the world. We don't want it. It's dissatisfying. It's unpleasurable. It's gross. We want God. We want his righteousness. And we start to experience that. And we find joy and satisfaction. And we we want more and more of him. This is the blessed Christian walk as we're stair-stepping toward heaven. Now we're going to take three more steps this morning. We're going to look at verses 7, 8, and 9. And in particular, verse 9. But... I want to begin with mercy, mercy, the blessing of mercy. And just taken by itself, a merciful person stands alone in our world. Verse 8 is going to talk about being pure in heart and then verse 9 being a peacemaker. All of these beatitude attributes single you out as so different from what the culture is spitting out right now or trying to create. Just imagine, ask yourself, when's the last time I genuinely was around someone who was merciful, was gracious, was very sympathetic or empathetic to my needs or to the needs of others? That stands out as very distinct, doesn't it? When was the last time you came up and and had a conversation with someone who had a whole devotion on the Lord, an undivided devotion on the purity of Christ? You said, man, that person loves God with a wholehearted devotion. It's very rare, very distinct, right? And then lastly, and we're going to camp out here later, but a peacemaker, someone who's driving for peace. These are what are what the Bible says in verse nine. They're called the sons of God. That's exactly what every Christian is called to be. These are not extra special Christians. This is Christianity. This is what God has dialed up for you on this particular weekend in our particular history as a country in our world to stand out in a distinct way, radically different for the sake of Christ, and for your personal joy. Don't forget that. This is the joy-filled Christian walk, but it is unique. It is odd. Let's look at what it means to be merciful. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You could misinterpret this as a tit-for-tat or a quid pro quo type statement, The idea that if you do this, if you give mercy mercifully, if you're merciful, then God will give you mercy. If you bless others, then God will rain down blessing on you. And that's not what Christ is doing in his sermon at all. That kind of misunderstanding of the Sermon on the Mount in general or misconstrual of what's here misses what Jesus is always about, which is the fact that Jesus is always preaching to the heart. He always wants your heart. He doesn't want your externalism. He doesn't want your action before he wants your heart. He wants your heart to be soft. He wants you to be merciful like he's been merciful. He wants you to be the mercy giver on his behalf. Matthew six fourteen later in this sermon says, if you forgive, your heavenly father will also forgive you. Doesn't that sound like if I do this, then God will do that? Like a tit for tat. That's not what's going on here. 
Jesus is saying, if God has softened your heart to be a forgiving person, then that means that he can identify you as someone he has forgiven. If God has made you, remade you, recreated you into a mercy-giving person, then that means that you have received mercy, the mercy of salvation, and you will receive mercy entering into heaven for all of eternity. People with changed hearts live differently. People with a changed heart, a person with a changed heart forgives. And it's radically different. Christianity is so different than what the world says uh, that it's able to do. The world, its version of reconciliation reaches for a truce, right? Let's just make it okay. Let's just, let's just write up a contract, a, a peace agreement. Let's have a peace talk. Let's create a coalition for peace. I mean, the only thing the world can hope for is a detente where you lay the weapons down. But for the Christian, we're people who we forgive. And we, in this case, show mercy. Show mercy. Mercy is not a synonym to grace. It's very similar to grace. But it stands as a distinct attribute within the Christian within the Christian life. Grace is unmerited favor that God gives to us. And we know of saving grace. We not only do not deserve grace, we, we are the ill-deserved, right, um, recipients of grace. We're those who have spurned God. We're at enmity with God. We suppress the truth, truth and unrighteousness. We're against God and God interrupts that rebellion. He intervenes on your soul and he says, you don't want this, just like a parent to a child who's screaming at the parent. You don't want this, but you need this anyway. And God gives us this intervention of grace. That's the grace of God that addresses our sins. Well, when you think of grace as different from mercy, think of, think of grace as that which addresses your sin and mercy as that which addresses the consequences of our sin. God meets us in our misery. He gives us what we do not deserve in the mercy, merciful pity and sympathy and love that he bestows upon us because he's merciful. The mercy of God is amazing, isn't it? His mercies renew every morning. Have you ever had just a rough night where you're raw inside, where you're repenting of sin and you go to sleep and you've, you're rehearsing the promises of God to, to buoy your spirit up and you wake up and you just sense God's blessing and his mercy to restart in the Christian walk, to get back up on the horse and to ride again for his glory. This is the mercy of God in our lives. It targets the heart. It's... Mercy is never a right. It's never something that we should have a sense of entitlement over. Mercy is always a gift. It's the sympathy of God for the consequences of sin. And the opposite is true for a non-believer. Non-believers have no sense of being merciful. They haven't received mercy and they don't know how to give it. James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2.16 is uh, the example of a person who does not have faith because they say, Go in peace and be warmed and filled to someone in need. And James says, What good is that? It's a person who's not experienced mercy, so they're not giving mercy. James 3.17 um, makes 
the wisdom of God as a synonym for heart change. It says, but the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. When you're converted, you're given this mercy. Mercy is demonstrated in compassion. You remember the parable of the good Samaritan who reached out to the man who'd fallen among thieves. He was going up to Jericho and he was, he was exposed and vulnerable and bloodied and beaten. And it says in Luke 10, 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, the religious ones had walked on the right and left side of the road. They'd walked right past him. It's like that person that's on the side of the road in the ditch. I'm going to be convicted by this, right? Because I'm the least handy person in the room right now, right? But I'm going to have to pull over and probably put my life at risk to try to help somebody because we can't get out. We can't step away from a verse like this, right? You have to meet people in need. But that's, that's mercy. The, it says, as he journeyed, uh, the Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. This is, he had splognos. It's the Greek word for the, the bowels just, just gushing. You feel it. You need to help somebody in need. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he sat him on his own animal and brought him to his inn and took care of him. And Jesus' encounter with Bartimaeus is one of my favorite stories about mercy. You've got blind Bartimaeus who's sitting there desperate, in need, he was, he was put aside and he knew Jesus was coming by, knew Jesus was going to walk up. They came to Jericho and as he was leaving Jericho, his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting on the roadside or by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. That's Mark 10, 46 and 47. What is Bartimaeus doing? Is he demanding mercy? Well, maybe in the purest sense. What he's doing is really putting himself in the way of Jesus and saying, I can do nothing for myself. I need mercy. I'm helpless. Christians respond to that. Jesus met him in his need. We're mercy givers because we've been shown the undeserved and ill-deserved mercy and sympathy of of. Love from God. Look at verse 8. Purity promises God's presence. So mercy promises mercy. And then verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Happiness comes from being pure. Let that sink in. There's so much filth in the world, right? There's so much grime. There's so much predatory awful that's out to get you. And you know what it gets? It, it saps your joy. Immorality, looking at the wrong thing, going to the wrong place, listening to the wrong joke, taking party in some kind of unrighteous sin in your heart or in your actions, saps your joy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed, happy is someone who has an undivided heart, not a foot in the world and a foot in God's word, but an undivided, single-hearted, single-focused devotion on the Lord. The heart is an interesting um, thing to study in scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, cardia in the New Testament. It speaks of the mind, will, and emotions. It's uh, talking about the inner man. We're all made in the image of God. And when you are transformed, when your heart is changed, God is taking out your cold heart and he's replacing it with a new soft 
heart, a newly created born again heart where you can love him with heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the affections and the will and the mind. It's what makes us stand as distinct from the animal kingdom. We are those who are put on this earth to worship God. And the externalism of the Pharisees flies in the face of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, worship me and glorify me with an undivided devotion from the heart. And the Pharisees are saying, hey, we got all of our boxes checked. We're doing everything that we need to do external, externally with our own willpower. The Pharisees were hard-hearted. Jesus said of them and others, Matthew 15, 8, the people This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It'd be like singing like we just were doing. And and you're honoring with lips, but your heart is a million miles away. Now, this is not to convict those who sing on the road for 25 years. But just like preaching, you have to engage yourself in worship when you're doing something that you do all the time. This group has to make a deliberate decision because they've sung these songs and led congregations in worship so often they could just get up and do it, right, functionally, out of muscle memory. But talking with them between services, I know that they love Christ, and so I can vouch for them. But we all individually are under this same battle. I have to engage. God is real. Christ is certain. The gospel is true. Heaven is sure. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm climbing heavenward as I renounce my own self-righteousness and see it as sin. And I mourn over that. And I, I engage God with a purity of heart. Psalm 24, 3 and 4, David said, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false. Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Listen to this phrase. David said, Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear all of who you are. That's what we are called to have, not to be hypocrites. I mean, Jesus called the Pharisees out. You're hypocrites. You're blind. You're the blind leading the blind. You're a whitewashed sepulcher with dead men's bones inside. I mean, this, this is what we fight against. Hypocrisy is the word for actors. We, we will not be actors on the stage. We will be true Christians who are blessed as we follow this path. It's the Christian experience that's at stake here. Look at this. It says, blessed are the pure in heart. What do you risk if you're not pure in heart? You don't see God. If you are pure in heart, you see God. What does that mean? Well, what the scripture teaches is it's talking about the Christian eyes of faith. When you become a Christian, the blinders are taken off. Second Corinthians 4 says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. We're blind. It's like Saul who was repenting of his sin with Ananias and the scales fell off, right? That blindness keeps us from loving Jesus. And when we're impure, we can't see Jesus in our lives. We don't have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God firing in our hearts to say, I'm looking into the face of Christ, the one whom I love. He's real. My devotional life is real. When I read the Bible, it's intersecting with 
what's happening in my circumstances. The conversations that I'm having are providential conversations and intersections of where the Holy Spirit's working in my life and probing around and I'm repenting of things and I'm seeing God answer prayers. My will is aligned with his will. That's seeing God. That's sightedness as it's called. The sightedness of God. It's where we see him with undivided devotion, enjoying the presence of God, living with a clean conscience. Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart. And listen to this, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. But you say, this is hard to do. Because if I were honest, and I was just speaking in terms of my own heart, I know how bad I still really am. Even though I believe I'm a Christian, my heart, watch this, haunts me, right? I mean, Jesus speaks of this. We're born in sin. We live out our lives in our sin-cursed human flesh. And even though we're redeemed and we're no longer enslaved to sin, the principle of remaining sin still dwells within us. We are like Paul in Romans 7, we're, you know, we're doing what we don't want to do. We don't do what we want to do. And we just eventually come to the end of ourselves and say, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's, it's a real dynamic. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones um, talked about this in his um, Sermon on the Mount book. And um, he just, he talked about this contamination that we have inside. Murder, adultery, fornication, stealing, lying, blasphemy. All this is the basis for trouble in our hearts. It's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. It's, the, it's what caused God to destroy the world with a flood. He, the Lord, Genesis 6-5, saw the weakness of every man. It was great in the earth, that wickedness, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, this is a dramatic description of the wickedness of our heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart's what? Deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And you say, I'm redeemed. I don't have that heart anymore. Yeah, but you have the residual sinful hangover of our hearts in this life until we are fully brought into heaven and glorified. So how do we love the Lord through a heart instrument that is so sinful? Well, do what David did. David, had, as he had sinned at the, at the highest level, as the king of Israel, in Psalm 51 said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The only way we can find the blessing of a pure heart is to come to the end of ourselves and say with God and the Holy Spirit, My heart is as sinful as you truly identify it to be. Create me a clean heart. And go to the word of God. How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119.9. By guarding it according to the word of God. We've got to let the word interrogate us. And we have to focus on God. And admit that our heart is contaminated with sin. And yet go to him anyway. Martin Luther, he, he sometimes with his brusque manner and just straightforwardness, just kind of lays it out and gives some hope through the way he talks. He talked about this. He was comparing sin to physical dirt. He said, Christ wants you to have the pure heart. Though outwardly the person may be a drudge in the kitchen, 
black, sooty, grimy, doing all sorts of dirty work. I got in trouble first hour for talking about our kitchen. But anyway, it's good. It's good. It's fine. I'm in charge of that. So it's my fault. All right. Again, though a common laborer, a shoemaker or a blacksmith may be dirty and sooty and he may smell because he is covered with dirt and pitch. And though he stinks outwardly, listen to this, inwardly, he is pure incense before God because he ponders the word of God in his heart and obeys it. Don't give up on the Lord. Don't spurn the mercy of God. Don't reject the grace of God in your life. You can be happy if you will but repent and feed on truth. We see in a mirror dimly on this stage of things, right? The Lord's there. We see him in our hearts. But one, one day, face to face, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. This is the promise of heaven. As we look to the Lord's return, it purifies us as he himself is pure, 1 John 3, 3. Well, let's look to um, my third and final point, which was really what I wanted to preach on anyway. I can only see the clock from a distance, but it, it says I have time. I don't have my cell phone today, so we're completely unhinged. <laughs> verse 9. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Peacemaking. Peacemaking is rare. It's rare in the world. Again, the most that our world hopes for is cutting a deal, making a truce, calling a detente, creating a coalition, writing up a contract. True peacemaking means that you are really willing to deal with sin. We're not talking about being a conciliator. I'm not talking about being a social worker. I'm not talking about calling two people together and re playing referee. That's not what I think the Bible is describing. What Jesus is saying a peacemaking Christian is. Pe to be a peacemaker is to be a mercy giver, is to be someone who forgives, is to be a soul searcher. It's to be someone who's honest about God's holiness and your hunger and thirst therein. It's someone who's got an undivided um, devotion on the Lord. All these are attributes of being a Christian. And so this is equally an attribute of being a Christian. You stand distinct because you're willing to say and deal with the hard stuff of life. Peacemaking. Peacemaking. It's not just being easygoing. It's definitely not being a pacifist where you're saying peace at all costs. Let's just not deal with it. Let's sweep it under the rug. Let's put on a hanger face and smile like this and pretend that nothing's wrong. It doesn't, do, it doesn't work that way. Being a peacemaker is being a believer. Who read, who's ever read the book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship? It's a very powerful book. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was that German revolutionary who was ultimately assassinated for being in collusion to assassinate Hitler. There's also a, a German theologian who stood for truth and, and righteousness in the gospel. Bonhoeffer described um, what was called cheap grace, which was early easy believism, a gospel that was promoted and being preached in um, the 40s, I guess, and, and he was indicting that because it was, it was a gospel that had no repentance attached to it. The gospel is all by grace. We are saved by the undeserved, ill-deserved grace of God. We understand that, but God calls us to repent and believe. And so repentance is part of the gospel. We're turning away from our sin because God's done this radical, dramatic work in our heart. Easy believism just says, ignore your sin and come to Jesus and he'll take care of it all. 
And Bonhoeffer was calling that out. Well, John Stott latched onto that with this passage and said, when we ignore sin in peacemaking, when we just walk around as pacifists, we're basically fraudulent in the gospel. We're making Christianity a fraud. We're ignoring sin. We're, we're hiding away from what's hard. And he calls that, that's making cheap peace. Just like cheap grace, it's cheap peace. Well, this reminds me of what was going on in Ezekiel's day. Ezekiel was a 25-year-old um, prophet. If, if my study from before is, is um, accurate, he was somewhere in his 20s. He was one of the captives that was captured in Babylonian captivity with several thousand other Jews and, and brought into that captivity around 586 BC. He's there and five years into being in captivity, he's called to be a prophet and he's called to be a prophet that stands out distinct from the other false prophets. The other false prophets were trying to comfort the people of Israel. You had some Jews who were still home, some Jews who were, um, who were in captivity displaced from their home, being brainwashed, just like Daniel, the attempts were there to, to go after them, to try to transform and take over the, the Jewish culture. And Ezekiel is standing up because there were prophets who were saying, look, there's, there's peace and security here. We're going to be going home soon. And Ezekiel stood up in the midst of that and was called to call out this whitewashing or this um, plastering over of lies. It says precisely, Ezekiel 13, 10, precisely because they have misled my people. This is God speaking to Ezekiel. They, the false prophets, have misled my people saying peace when there is no peace. Because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it will, that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain in you, O great hailstones, will fall and the stormy wind will break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said of you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Well, true peace takes work. And I don't know what situation you're dealing with, but this is one of those sermons that indicts probably the whole room in a variety of ways that are a bunch of, as the old Southern Baptists would call them, unspoken prayer requests. It's an unspoken, right? Because you're dealing with something on the deepest level that God calls us to do. It's like a mission that's, that's given to us to seek peace with people, to try to make peace, to try to do what is one of the most hard things to possibly do. There's an inevitability of conflict. And when people, according to John Stott, take forbidden shortcuts, it makes Christianity, a fraud, but true peace is a costly treasure. Reconciliation is a costly treasure when people get back together. I was just reading earlier this week about Paul and Barnabas, how they separated over John Mark. And then at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, he says, I want John Mark to come and be with me in my final days because he's worthy. He's a worthy brother, worthy of service love him. It's because there was reconciliation. Something happened. Something happened that wasn't spoken of directly in scripture, but they got back together. It's amazing. We know conflict is coming. The battleground of, that the Christian faces is real. Just like physical wars are inevitable, 
The curse of sin means conflict is inevitable. Making peace is costly. What happens when you, have, when you make peace? You're literally calling out sin. You're literally going to the depth of someone's source of hurt and pain. You're pointing to the only true Christ, the only solution. Not religion, Christ. They have to trust grace alone. You would have to trust grace alone. There's repentance. There's seeking truth. There's suffering wrongs. There's suffering rejection. There's risking relationships. There's rejoicing in reconciliation. It's a willingness to go into what's called the war zone. The war zone. It's difficult to even think about. In secular writing, there's been much said about wars. Will and Ariel Durant, um, Pulitzer Prize winners in a book they wrote, Lessons of History, said war is one of the constants in history and had not diminished with civilization and democracy in the last 3,421 years of recorded history. Only 268 years have seen no war. Albert Einstein said, as long as there are sovereign nations possessing great power, listen, war is inevitable. Do we believe war is inevitable? Kind of a nervous time in our culture. We don't know what form it may take, but Einstein said, this is not an attempt to say when it will come, but only that it is sure to come. British politician Enoch Powell said, history is littered with wars which everybody knew would never happen. And an anonymous person who I venture to say might be Alaskan said this, peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. (laughs) God's word tells us to expect wars. Wars and rumors of wars, Matthew 24 says. I don't want to romanticize war. War is awful. comes at a tremendous cost. But the warfare of the Christian experience is real. It's undeniable. And peace comes with a cost. Think of the Prince of Peace. I mean, Jesus came and the the Christmas culture that we'll come into romanticizes Jesus' birth, which was, you know, a wild birth in a small little obscure town with a mom screaming and a baby screaming with this baby born in a stall in, in abject poverty. And he's the savior of the world. And he came to save us from our sins. Now, he did bless. He did welcome the children to himself. He brought words of life. He brought words of hope. He brought healing. But he also brought conflict. He brought confrontation. He called sin out. He called the blindness of the Pharisees blind. Their wicked hearts that were leading people towards an eternal hell. He called that out. And ultimately, that led him to a bloody cross. Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6, brought peace about by violence. Listen to this quote. At the cross, all man's hatred and anger was vented against God. On the cross, the Son of God was mocked, cursed, spit upon, pierced, reviled, and killed. Jesus' disciples fled in fear. That sky flashed lightning. The earth shook violently. The veil of the temple was torn in two. Yet through the violence, God brought peace. God's great righteousness confronted man's greatest wickedness and righteousness won. And because righteousness won, peace was won. 
Now, as we pursue peace, it's not always going to happen, right? You've probably felt like you have failed in missions where you've pursued peace. But the goal of the Christian peacemaker is to pursue peace, to pursue it. God has won the victory, right? He knows who's going to be in glory. But our goal is to be Jesus on earth and to pursue peace for the sake of people's hearts. I'll never forget being with uh, my best friend growing up. We were converted together as 17-year-olds and his parents were not believers and my parents sort of adopted him spiritually. But we were sitting there and, and he loved his parents and has honored, him, honored them his whole life. But... There was a moment where we're sitting with his mother, who was very dear to me even, and and he just said, "Um, you know, the gospel, Jesus is real, and and this is the path I'm following, and I just want to be clear from that. She's just not getting it. And she was basically signaling that this is creating conflict in the household. And my friend, early in his Christian life, somehow had read the verse from Matthew 10 about how Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. So it, you know, it grieves us when we can't make peace, but we still pursue it. So how do we, how do we pursue peace? How do, we, how do we try to make things right with people. We're called to make peace with believers and with unbelievers. How do we do it? Well, first of all, I would say you have to fight idealism. You have to fight against the candy coating, you know, sweep it under the rug, idealism. You have to call it out. If there is sin that is interrupting your world, your life, And you have to get something right with someone. You have to go into the war zone and replace your unbelief with peace and courage. Men, let me just talk to you. You need to act like men. Act like men. Athletes, farmers, and soldiers. Three tough categories that we're all called to live as Christians. Called to be athletic. Get into the arena. We're called to farm, to persevere and sow seed. At all costs. We're called to be soldiers. And you go into these battlegrounds with the word of God. And you're not fighting to be right. You're fighting for truth. You have to fight against resentment. You fight against the emotion of being falsely accused. Or you absorb the accusation and check it scripturally. And you repent of what's there. What's been called out. You fight your pride. So you fight idealism. Fight resentment. You fight pride. You face yourself and you fight rationalizing issues away. To make things right with people, again, is not being the social worker where you just get the get out of jail free card, where you just play the middle. No, it's going in with the Bible. Even if you're helping people, you're putting yourself on the line because eventually you have to take a stand and say, I think this is what Jesus meant when it said you have to forgive, or this is what Jesus meant when it says you have to repent. That work is hard. You have to check your own anger. The anger of man does not produce righteousness. James 1.20, a soft answer or a gentle answer turns away wrath. Soft, a harsh word stirs up anger. You've got to work through all of that. But you're fighting for peace. Don Carson, one of my favorite theologians, said, Do not confuse the issues, the issues that you're dealing with with ego 
Learn to lower your voice and smile more broadly in proportion to the intensity of an argument. It's hard. Jesus did it though. Remember he was being blasphemed. He was being beaten. He was nailed to a cross. First Peter 2 says this is what he was doing when he was reviled. First Peter 2.23, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued. Look at this. He's writhing on the cross, right? He's horizontal in his focus. People are hating him, mocking him, hurting him. And he's going, I'm entrusting myself to my heavenly father. It says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He was obeying the Father's will. That's what peacemaking is doing. With unbelievers, we preach Christ. We preach the uncompromised message of the gospel. Romans 10, 15 calls it the beautiful feet that bring good news. That good news hurts people and it will stir conflict. Make no mistake. John 4, when Jesus was meeting the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, breaking through racial barriers, just being Jesus, just working um, the, the work of the evangelist at the well, he calls her out. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. She was talking about religion, this, this mountain, that mountain. Let's have a theological debate about whether this is appropriate or not to be sitting here. Well, yeah, look, call your husband. Let's deal with the issue, the real issue, and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. You have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So what you have said is true. We also have to face believers. I mean, the John 4 story is a great one. She becomes a believer. But believers are the scariest people to make peace with, aren't they? Somehow, somehow it's easier to deal with the sins of an unbeliever than talking to somebody that you know, your own pride says they should know better, <laughs> right? But we all harden our own hearts. We all deal with stuff. We put walls up and barriers up. And dealing with believers is tough stuff. Matthew 5, it says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Get it right. Authenticate the Christian life. Come to terms quickly, even with unbelievers that are taking you to court because Jesus warns against the accuser, the one who will ultimately bring you to court, turn you over to a judge, and then you're put in prison. And it says, truly, I say to you that you will never get out until you have paid your last penny. You don't want to be there. You don't want to try to superficially try to fix things with worldly methods. You want to deal with the heart. Otherwise, you'll be in a debtor's prison. Romans 12, 18, if possible. So as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The outcome is, is the Lord's, right? You go in, you do the best you can, you try to work it out. But as far as it is possible with you, you go, you try, right? You try and then you leave it with the Lord. I'm just trying to lay out scripture because how many times am I, am I gonna come back to blessed are the peacemakers? This is a key passage for our lives. Okay, I just looked at the clock. I get it. So what benefit does the peacemaker have? They know they are sons of God. Look at verse nine. They shall be called the sons of God. You know that you're a Christian. Listen, I've talked to 
I, th- I remember this conversation with a multimillionaire. He brokered all kinds of million-dollar deals, very successful businessman. And then it's a former church situation, not here. I was associate pastor, and I was in charge of children's ministry, and it was the Awana ministry, and a family was hosting some Awana kids, and there was a problem in the home of where those kids were going to be hosted. So that had to be worked through. And we're working through that in the office with the mom, with this Awana mom, with this other person, and with this multi-million dollar businessman. And this businessman's lip is quivering because he's having to talk about something this sensitive that's dealing with sin, that's going to split up the relationship between these families. And after everything was done and, and we had dealt with the issue, he looked at me, he said, that was one of the toughest things I've ever had to do. And guess what? It was It was. It was. It's that hard. It's warfare. That's why you have this promise. They shall be called the sons of God. This is not pointing in particular to the status of sonship, though it's there. You are a Christian if you're a peacemaker. But this is talking about intimacy. God is with you in the battle zone. He's with you in the arena. And you never feel the presence of God like you do when you're willing to really go for it and take a stand with scripture. It's you and God. It's Martin Luther, you know. I cannot, I will not, I can't. Here I stand, I could do no other. Do what you will. Kill me if you have to. Those moments, God is with you. And you know it, you sense it, you see it. You have the eyes of faith that God is parenting you. You're the apple of his eye. You're filled with love. We peacemake. Not for glory, we have to be selfless if you're going to do that. But you can peacemake for intimacy. You peacemake because you're enjoying the intimacy of the fellowship of God. It's fellowship and sufferings. Okay, who would be willing to admit that um, they remember the earthquake that happened um, a couple nights, night before last, right? 5.1, right? Right? So who was the scared spouse? Judy would say it was me. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just trying to be a protector, right? That's why I jump up. All that to say... All that to say, when an earthquake happens, it means there's unrest probably 17 miles beneath the earth's surface. It's incredible. Well, this is also true in oceanic um, things. Listen to this. The earth's most violent weather occurs on the seas, but the deeper one goes, the more serene and tranquil the water becomes. Oceanographers report that the deepest parts of the sea are absolutely still. When those areas are dredged, they produce remnants of plant and animal life that have remained undisturbed for thousands of years. It's a picture of what we have in the gospel in our hearts. We have the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, that guards our hearts like a garrison of soldiers guarding our hearts until the day of the Lord Jesus. So why should you go and try to peacemake? Why make yourself vulnerable? Because you have the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which will guard your hearts. That peace goes deep. It goes deep. And it can carry you through. So don't be afraid to do the right thing and stand out as a son or daughter of God in this culture today.